This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, Charles. Hello, John. Okay, so we've got a looser formatted show planned for today, so I'm keeping our opening question just as loose. I simply want to know what Mm. you, Charles, what movie you are looking forward to the most in 2021. Oh, goodness. It's uh, wild because like so many movies have already come out and I feel like I've already kind of gotten my fill for movies for this year. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of things that have yet to officially hit any of the streaming services, I'm weirdly interested to see Spiral. Um, I was never really much one for the Saw like franchise, oh. but, but the idea that like, all right, this time Jigsaw's back and he's going after cops. It's like, yes, I do want to see what, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 not, not, not for any particular personal reasons, but it's like, there's, there's a, there's an angle, like there's a legitimate angle to this, uh, franchise about a little puppet man who goes around <laughs> killing people with traps and crap like oh yeah sure what about you i can't even think about any other movies because i just want the saw franchise to now use that description of a, a crazy little puppet man who put goes around making traps i think that's just a pretty great summarization of those uh shows so let's move <laughs> on from there and then have some fun with the show let's do it Welcome to The Real Canon, a new pod about the genre pop culture we all live, breathe, and help make happen in real time. I'm Charles Pulliam Moore, writer and culture critic at io9. And I'm John Reisinger, content creator and producer for Rooster Teeth Productions. Today, we're switching things up a bit to connect with you in a different way. Yeah, as the show's been growing and more people have been listening in, uh, we started to get more feedback and questions, especially on social media. Um, the Real Canon's always been about encouraging conversation and really healthy discussions within the fandom, because a lot of what people are talking about when they're getting into, you know, the tone of the discourse uh, really boils down to how we all interact with each other. And so we kind of wanted to spend some time interacting with each other by, like, discussing some of the things that you guys have brought up. Yeah, we're going to answer some of the questions, big and small, about different aspects of the Real Canon of things but first as always we're going to roll into cannon fodder real quick and do a quick breakdown of a particularly noteworthy news story okay so uh warner media made a big announcement where they said that they're going to go back to just theatrical exclusive releases in 2022 which is a stark contrast to their like dual release schedule that they did for 2021 yeah which speaks to what people expect the theatrical experience to be when we get to 2022 right i mean it does this is sort of like the other half of the conversation that we could not have back when that first announcement uh, was made last year that warner brothers was making the decision because we could not be certain when it would be safe for people to return to theaters the studio rather than kicking the can you know further down the lane the way a lot of other studios did throughout 2020 they were just like all right it's all going to be on hbo max um we're going to do some of the simultaneous release there was a lot of drama around that but it all you know in the end looked like the the studio making a really prudent decision about the future. The question was whether that move was really going to signal a big tectonic shift in the space, right? A lot of people, particularly theater owners, were concerned, oh, like people are going to get used to this. And what if Warner Brothers doesn't decide to bring their products back into movie theaters? What's going to happen to our industry? And obviously with things like this, there's no way of knowing exactly what the future will hold. And now we see like Warner Brothers is like, oh, no, 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 like we're going, we plan on rather going back to, you know, same old, same old, even though... (laughs) 
who's to say what 2022 will look like, right? Like this is all, I feel like we are in a much better position to sort of speak about what the future may be like now, as opposed to last year when it was just sort of like, who knows when Black Widow will come out? It's going to be in theaters <laughs> though. And now it's like, see, now if we had just, you know, stopped playing games in the first place, we could have had our, our heads on straight about all this. Um, but now, given that there are vaccinations um, rolling out across the U.S. in particular, these companies, you know, they are more able to say these things in public. But I don't know, in the next couple of months, it, it, it I, I think that it's definitely going to be a shift away from movies, right? So we were talking about Dune earlier. You know Warner Brothers never intended for Dune to be a streaming, like, release movie. Like, that yeah. was not in the cards. Um, and I can very easily see uh, um, the studio moving away from that. But in mixing with all of these really big cinematic releases all this year, there have been a lot of really interesting prestige, like, prestige adjacent series that have come to HBO Max. I'm thinking of, like... The Flight Attendant, a lot of cartoons, uh, this new series, Made for Love. Like HBO Max, you know, the concern was like, oh, do they have content? And in addition to, you know, the Snyder Cut, they're like, yeah, we do. So I think that even if they do pull the films away, it's not as if HBO Max is suddenly going to become like a desert. Because I don't, even now, I don't really feel like the movies, the movies are events, but I don't feel like the movies are really what keep people on the platform. I think this conversation, though, is going to keep going because... As much as Warner needs to, just like a lot of these companies, these studios needs to get back to making, you know, theatrical money. Um, they're, if they're going to continue to compete in this streaming space, that mm -hmm. like HBO Max and Disney Plus is, you know, in the world that Netflix created, um, they're probably going to need to continue to manipulate their, their structure to emulate the way Netflix is able to output content in that Netflix puts out, you know, like you said, prestige, you know, uh, episodic content, but also Netflix buys a lot of movies and, and makes a lot of movies now and puts them all out there. And these are movies that are theatrical quality and theatrical production value. Um, mm -hmm. and in fact have been, you know, nominated in the same categories as, uh, theatrical movies. And so if HBO Max and Disney that, you know, these kinds of new players in this space want to continue to compete there, I don't, I don't think this is the end of like, I don't, I, I think it's not going to be like, you know, obviously Warner Media can't say we're only going to be exclusively on our platform and in the movie theater at the same time, they can't do that. But I think Warner is going to still have to continue to split their focus to make stuff for HBO Max as well as make stuff to put out like in AMCs and Regals and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, like that was the case before, you know, the studios have always operated that way. It's just become much more apparent and streamlined in the age of streaming yeah. services. And you can see, you know, people, it's, it, it, a couple of years ago, it wasn't really normal for people to know when like Netflix acquired the rights to a movie and then slapped its branding on it, right? But now that's sort of like, that's a thing that some people who follow this kind of news like are aware of. And it's not going to change, you know, if anything, like getting back into the theaters, just from a financial perspective, like getting back into like making box office money, that just makes it easier for the machine to crank out more, you know, more product for, right. you know, to speak of it in, in those terms, like for the streaming services. So, I mean, like no one ever thought that, you know, oh, this is the end of theaters. Um, it was going to be a hard time for theaters. And who's to say like what the future will hold in terms of what release windows are like. But I do think that all the studios have always planned on at least getting like a big footprint back into theaters when they open. Yeah. And actually this article spoke to, um, you talked about release windows, how they're going with like a 45 day release window with this stuff. Um, not to say that after 45 days, a movie has to be pulled from theaters and is going to be on HBO max instead, but that, 
they're looking to kind of follow that schedule, which for people who aren't like super hungry to get to a movie before anybody else does, you know, people who are fine with waiting, like that's going to be an option for them now is like just to, just to wait, wait for it to come out to HBO Max in about a month and a half and just watch it there. This entire like this entire line of conversation actually kind of dovetails perfectly with the first question that we want to get into. So like you ready to just pivot? Yeah, let's go to stay the canon. Let's do it. So uh, I, I asked everybody on our socials to um, just ask us any questions about the genre entertainment and the kind of content that we've been speaking on with our, our current library of episodes. And so we kind of have a smattering of questions and we're just going to go down the line. But yeah, like you said, that thing we were just talking about with the Warner Media rolls into our first question from at River Tamsong. They ask, how do you see the movie industry moving forward after COVID? Will we still have packed movie theaters or will we see a move towards Alamo dining experience theaters and stream to home on the same day release like HBO Max? This is kind of asking like, what is like the post COVID movie experience? Do you have theories about this, Charles? I think that the thing that we need to really be paying attention to in order to get a sense of what the future of movie theaters is going to look like is what people's behavior post-COVID outside of, you know, their desire to go to movie theaters is like. People in these conversations really do forget what it is that disrupted the industry, right? We talk about like money and like planning and logistics. People were afraid to go out of, you know, people were afraid to leave their houses for fear of a a, a contagion that might kill them, right? And that is sort of still the baseline concern here. Um, I think it really is going to boil down to the degree to which um, public messaging um, and vaccination rates actually really do get us to a point where people don't feel skittish outside. And realistically, I think that let's say, let's say, let's hypothesize that theaters are open by next year. I don't know that we can fully downplay the impact that same day or closer to same day releases have had on the industry, right? Um, There's still, you know, the jury is still out on how Disney in particular has sort of chosen which of its films to release. Um, and sort of give that exclusive um, window on Disney Plus where you can, you know, release day, you pay an extra 30 bucks to sort of get that first day experience. And then I think it shows up on the service uh, 30 days later or three months later or something. There's some window um, like that. I think that something like that, I can see the value in that for people, right? Beyond whether or not they are afraid of going to theaters, which I think are going to have to change in ways that... Um, are are unavoidable like i can't imagine that theaters are just like all right everybody pack right in there because there are so many things about movie theaters that were gross to begin with you know the sticky floors there's people there the 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 seats they they you know they're they're damp question mark you know the, all <laughs> all of that <laughs> all of those things were um you know aspects of you know the theater going experience that the industry was rather slow to address in the first place and so that makes me think to myself like i don't know that movie theater owners can just immediately ask people to go back to how things were. Um, But just like beyond the fear, I think that a lot of people did sort of come around to the idea, hey, like I want to see this new movie, right? Um, I don't necessarily want to go through the hassle of putting on my clothes and leaving my house, <laughs> getting on the subway. Go, you know what I mean? Like there's obviously there's a longing to get back to the, the whole going out aspect of yeah. life. But, you know, the idea of paying like 30 bucks to go see a movie when you know doing so is avoiding, um, yeah. you know, avoiding a crowd. And also, you know, relatively speaking, it's cheaper. I think that that's something that people are going to hold on to for a while. 
Yeah, I mean, we, the, you know, uh, we were already heading towards this very mixed uh, experience of, you know, theatrical releases and streaming services where, mm-hmm. you know, we were already getting towards that world. And I don't think we're necessarily going to see a, 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 you know, a stark drop off of like, oh, you know, the old movie experience is dead. Long live the new streaming experience. I don't think we're, we're there. There's right. too much money still available in the theatrical experience and theatrical release. And thanks to the gods of capitalism, that's going to continue to be a reason why they do that. Um, but I, if, if anything, I think COVID kind of edged us even a little bit, like gave us a little bit of a bump towards people uh, being, you know, used to that at-home streaming experience, day of release experience. And so I think COVID just kind of expedited that transition a little bit more, but I, I definitely don't think that we're, we're going to be like seeing where certain movies are just not going to be in movie theaters and people just watch them at home. Um, not until like some part of the market changes even more drastically. Um, or we hit our second pandemic. That's also an option, you know, Ooh, don't, don't joke about that. Like that's not even like, that's really, but I mean like that's one, it's not funny, but two, that is an actual concern, right? I'm, like I'm that aware, is the, yeah. you know, that is the, you know, hope ideally by the end of the year, you know, the bulk of the country is vaccinated and you know, we are at a point where new infections are so low that, you no longer, you know, need to wear a mask for fear of potentially contracting it and passing it along to someone who isn't vaccinated, right? Um, that's the dream, and that's what we should all be striving for. Right. But, assu- but assuming that it's going to happen and assuming that it's a foregone conclusion is how you get um, drawbacks, which is one of the reasons why these really um, slipshod, rushed reopenings are concerning. Because it's like, oh, no, yeah. no, 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 we're so close, we're so close, we're so close. Hold up. I think I think a lot of these companies, though, they are like, uh, you know, my, my joke aside, I think they they any smart company right now is looking at the experts who are now warning us of this being a reoccurring something that's going to happen due to the state of the world and climate c- control and everything like that, that now in order to be, you know, a company that's successful in any, you know, weather, you got to have that diversified revenue stream and while HBO Max, you know, while Warner is a good example of someone who's like saying like, we're going to go back into the movies, like they're still going to look heavily on HBO Max to be something that they they want to be successful and to be there if something else happens that causes people not be able to go to the movie theaters. All right. This is from Ava Pilot 11 What are the core features and themes that have made the latest run of comic book movies so successful? And could they be used for other nerd media like games? Should they be? Huh. That's, that's a very good question. I'm trying to think of like what's the most recent, like the big most recent like comic book movie that really became an event. You know, it's been a while. It was like Endgame. Um, and after Endgame, you know, like Far From Home and then obviously the the Snyder Cut. And I'm trying to think like what are the themes running through all of those? The theme really that comes down to like I think some of their successes, like these are core themes of any successful movie. And that's like you got to have a plan of like actually you know, an, a, a, a cohesive idea of what you're making and not just uh, going into just going, I'm just going to adapt this thing. It's like, no, like what, what story are you trying to tell that is worth telling? Um, that is something that is going to not only interest the existing fan base, mm-hmm. but also get a new demographic interest in your movie. There's, you know, there's a reason why Iron Man 1 was successful. It's that it... It did enough for the comic book fans of the past to to feel satisfied, but also there was so much in it that was just accessible and enjoyable by the general audience 
that it couldn't help but be you know the start of something big mm. um whereas like there have been several adaptations of things like video games into movies where I, I don't think there was enough of those ingredients in the recipe to create something worthwhile. I mean, like, like great examples of failures are things like Assassin's Creed and, and Warcraft. And these were just, I, I don't think these movies were made for anybody other than the people who knew these video games in the first place. But even then, the movies themselves didn't satisfy those fans either. So, like, I want to put a pin in that because we have another question that's specifically about video game movies. And I think that that is a slightly different thing to get into than this now bring like you bring up iron man iron man at this point is an old movie and i think that like the things that like made iron man good are not unique enough to really sort of be like what did iron man do that made you know it successful in a way that other movies in this space should do it's like well it had a solid story and a charismatic actor and you know a plan behind it that's right. sort of like that's like <laughs> that's good housekeeping 101 i think that like it is more helpful to look at like recent recent things because like they're the trend most recently with these big movies has been crossovers that is the sort of like mm. that is the the pollen in the air that's got everybody sneezing mm. and for a while uh, particularly with marvel that was working in terms of building up expectation sure. um building up hype and then ultimately you know really paying off the box office because of things like iron man right there'd been all that pre-planning and then <laughs> um uh, hindsight 2020 and when you're in the thick of things it's really hard to see them for what they are a lot of infinity war and endgame what they were was an experience right the stories themselves are not blowing people's minds oh it's got time travel what comic book story does not it was all right. about sort of the spectacle of it um and we joke about that headline like the most ambitious cinematic crossover in hollywood history all that means is like, oh, we got everybody together, right? Like it's a logistical nightmare. We got everybody wrangled and in movies in like in shots together. And that's great. But that in and of itself, I don't think I don't think that doing that again is going to, you know, be that's not the thing to do. That was one of the concerns I had personally about um, what we now know as Spider-Man No Way Home um, mm -hmm. when it seems like they were not only sort of like aping into the Spider-Verse's multiverse um, story aspect, but also just sort of going for, hey, we heard you guys like crossovers. You know, we're going to do, mm. you know, we're going to do a crossover across space and time, which to be fair, did get people excited, right? It's like, oh, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are coming back. But like to one end, right? Once we actually see it, there are, there are going to be those people for whom, you know, just the act itself is going to be enough. But yeah. in terms of like, all right, but what's the next what's the next move to get these things to be really strong pieces of art on their own? Um, like what's the, I hate to say, what's the next gimmick? Um, I think that we can look to series um, like WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier as inspiration for what sort of things the movies can do, especially because the series have done such a really good job of capturing that like action spectacle element, right? You're not really sort of getting down what I would consider a watered down version of a big screen story with um, um, not just with things like the live action MCU, but also with things like the Doom Patrol series, you are getting a lot of really good stuff. And so the movies, what I think that they can really learn from is like, yo, lean into this characterization, like the emotional stuff can work. And it doesn't just have to be the byproduct of years and years and years worth of seeding emotional feeling you can just make the movie about the person's feelings and they can still punch aliens but it's like you know what captain america <laughs> captain america cried this time and that made me that made me feel something um so i i, I think i i will always be the person who's like 
But like, what's their motivation? What's going on inside of them? Yeah, I think you actually uh, make a lot of valid points there. And I think you actually touched on something that it does have like a lot of value. And that is what is your gimmick? Um, and the gimmick doesn't necessarily, you know, be a reference to a cheap ploy that you use. I think a gimmick can even reference to like what makes your piece stand out from from the rest. Yeah. Yeah, like Thor Ragnarok had gimmicks that Taika Waititi implemented that were the reason why this movie stood out so much. But same can be said about certain video games, like the God of War reboot that happened on the PS4. It had gimmicks in it that made it stand out and have a higher level of production value than some other movies in the same world. You know, God of War not only had a lot more uh, uh, beautiful uh, art added to it as opposed to some of the more grimy versions of its predecessors, but also like things like the game never had any hard cuts. It was a constant single camera shot game that even when it went into cinematic moments, never cut away. And so that's like an interesting gimmick that added to this continuous energy that the game had. So... I don't think gimmicks can necessarily have to be a bad thing. Like, what is the gimmick of your movie? What is no, the, no. Wanda, WandaVision had a gimmick. WandaVision was like, our gimmick is we're going to travel through time of, you know, genres, of TV genres. Yeah, and when we say, like, the thing is, like, gimmick is a pejorative word, and we say that literally just meaning, like, well, what's the thing that you do that sets you apart? Like, what's your, what's your framing? What's the sort of energy yeah. that you're bringing? Ragnarok? A lot of it was just comedy. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, like, let's have, like, literally, let's just be comedy silly. Comedy and color. That's yeah. what Thor Ragnarok was. Right, and it's just like things become gimmicks when they sort of become the only, you know, the bit is the only thing that, you know, the piece of work has to bring to the table. And it's sort of doing, it's trying to do too much of the work to hold up, you know, elements of the story that just don't work otherwise. Um, but, you know, when deployed well within a story that already is like solid at its base, like, you know, a bit, a gimmick can be fantastic and just be like, oh my goodness, like, what is this wild ingredient in this dish that I was already familiar with, but was not expecting to be so delighted by? Yeah, like uh, there's a lot of directors that their little career is based around the gimmick of their the, of their talent. Like Edgar Wright is a great example of someone who definitely implements gimmicks throughout a ton of his work. You can tell when it's an Edgar Wright piece because of like the cadence and tempo and use of music and uh, uh, even physical comedy and camera comedy that he adds into his stuff. So I think that's definitely something to look for with any of the application of this kind of stuff into nerd media. Yeah. All right, let's go to another question that's kind of interesting. They, um, Blake Bishop uh, asked, why did D&D get so popular recently? I love the game and all the podcasts slash shows that have come out of it, but it feels like just a couple of years ago, I'd never heard of it. Charles, I'm actually curious what you think about this. Um, <laughs> I blame comedians. Um, <laughs> I'm not... I'm dead serious so it's the comedians in the podcast and this isn't like this is this is not me uh like trying to be shady um but it's sort of like D as like a conceit for an entertainment podcast is like sort of ready made for people to showcase their talents and their personalities um and so you know there are more D podcasts than i can name and like once there was one that became popular out there people not only saw that it was a space or a thing that they could get into but there are ways to riff on it as many comedy improv podcasts you've got musicals you've got crime procedurals you've got true crime it's just, just like it really is just um uh, a roiling void of chaos from which all things can spring and one of the things that springs eternal seems to be D&D &D, which you know I just it just sort of feels 
<laughs> like written in the stars, like it was sort of not meant to be, but it just sort of seems like, oh yeah, like that's just a facet of our society now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think you you nailed it when you say like it's it's one of those things that all it takes is is often one or two very successful examples of this. You know, I don't know if you consider D and D a genre, but that that kind of a thing, and then everybody else wants to jump on board and likes it. It's it's just a, a the game of viral popularity. D&D has been around for forever, but it was mostly known to be something that, you know, the uh, the nerds would play in quiet behind closed doors. But then with the introduction of like YouTube and podcasts, you know, people can can showcase this stuff in a much more public space. A few very talented people pick it up and show it off and they become very popular. It just kind of goes from there. And uh, and that's 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 how our culture just works right now. You, yeah. you nailed it as well. Like the true crime thing has just sprung forward from things like serial and other and and tv shows that were super popular and now it's like well everybody just consumes a ton of true crime media yeah and i mean like we live in a culture that is saturated with genre and fantasy um and in times you know like the past year and some change when everyone's been stuck at home and people are bored people have been looking for things to do you know um and D D is truly one of those things that you can do from a distance, um, if you are so inclined, that can be a way to build camaraderie and community and all these kinds of relationships that have always been a part of the game, um, but have obviously found um, a new life in the modern age where we're, you know, hyper-connected the way that we are. Um, and I mean, like, I totally, I get it, you know, as many people as, it's just like, why is there so much d d It's like, do you know how often Lord of the Rings is just on television? <laughs> or like, uh, did you, did you live through the early aughts? And like, did, it's, it's yeah. just, it's, it's out there. And this is yeah. just, this is, this is one of the ways that it's manifesting. Why is there D&D? People want to be Legolas. <laughs> There's your answer. All right. Yeah. So our next question is from Youngblood2403. Do you feel that the rampant speculation makes it harder for new comics fans to break into single issue collecting? Like Punchline's first appearance in Batman number 85, selling out the morning of release, then going for hundreds on eBay the same day due to speculation. Oh my goodness. I, I, <laughs> I literally, I just, um, I just published, um, a reported story about Pokemon collecting, um, during, you know, this weird drought. Um, that is something that anyone who lived through the nineties will remember, you know, it's, it's all suddenly come back in full force thanks to, you know, like streaming and the pandemic. Um, the comics thing is very similar and, you know, that goes, you know, that's always been a part of comics culture. You know, you get, you know, you show up, you get your, um, you get your, your first edition, um, the comics publishers take advantage of it by running multiple variant covers. You know, it's a whole thing. There is something about, you know, the current uh, generation of adults with disposable income, which is not to say, you know, our discrete cohorts that are different, but literally all of us who are like grown and running around with cash to spend. Mm -hmm. um, there is, I think, a certain kind of mindset that we have all shifted into when it comes to uh, the way that we... Mm, not monetize or commodify, but like the way that we relate to our passions and our collectible, you know, bits of fandom and stuff. Mm -hmm. Everyone has read the wild sneaker like stories that have come out in the past couple of months. That one executive's son from a sneaker company who got caught, you know, using his mom's connection to run a huge sneaker flipping operation. Yeah. That's not just like 
that's not just, you know, ooh, the American dream gone wrong. That is, I think, sort of like an outgrowth of a lot of people who grew up in the 80s and 90s living through multiple waves of crazes for different things like Beanie Babies and Cabbage Patch tall yeah. dolls and Pokemon cards and Bakugan. Like literally, no matter what age you are, there was something that sort of like got you, not necessarily hooked you into it or pulled you into it, but gave you a look at like, ooh, here's what hype looks like, right? And here's how you can participate in it. And here's how you can get a shot at, you know, making you some 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 quick money by flipping something in a couple years. I feel like that became a part of the mythos of our childhoods. You know, it's like, oh, I found this rare thing and I can sell it. And now, yeah. you know, now we live in this super hyper-connected age um, where not only are people doing this in their own, you know, insular communities, you know, people aren't just flocking to their own local comic book shops. It's like, it's happening online. People can, sh like people are showing off what they're doing. And there's a lot, you know, that, that is a form of community, but it also breeds, it breeds scarcity and competition. And that's, it's rough. Like I, I remember what it used to be like to just be able to walk into a comic book store and you just see all the variants sitting there and you're like, I want this one. And now mm -hmm. it's like, you gotta, you gotta go hunting for it. And I think, I don't know. I, I, I think that like if, if collecting physical objects is the thing that you want to do, there's a certain, like now there's just like a little bit more effort that you have to put into it. Yeah. I, I think comic books are at least fortunate in the one way in that if you're, if you're buying the comic books for the sake of collection, yeah, you're going to be competing in a space where there's other people who are going to be doing what this person's talking about and like, you know, buying out the comics that they want and selling them off. And that sucks. But at the very least, if you are in the comic space and you, and you want to have access to be able to just like read these books, luckily there's like other ways of being able to get access to the books in that like there really isn't another way that you want to experience pokemon trading cards other than getting the cards themselves right 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 again if like you if you get them because you really want to play the game there are other ways of doing that digitally where you can mm -hmm. play it you know online that kind of thing and thankfully that's there but with pokemon cards if you actually want to just have them and own them yeah you're you're competing in a space where people are buying the shit up and just selling it exactly yeah same goes for comics uh I, all i can say is like yeah luckily if if you're someone who just wants to be able to keep up on comics like you can either read them digitally you can wait for the trades mm -hmm. um you can wait for you know second third and fourth edition prints of stuff um if you really really need that first edition you know the the non-variant version of a comic book um yeah you're just going to be competing in space where people might be buying it out i the same thing was happening with like a uh, powers of x and house of x number one and yeah twos yeah and that kind of thing I remember, and I and I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I'm like, I just I, I want these comics. I've I've been X Men fan since I was eight years old. Back off. I, I mean, it's the wild thing is like uh, on the flip side of it, right? There are people who are critical of the comics publishers for doing you know multiple variants and sort of playing into the speculation game when you know the the counterpart is like, oh, like isn't the point to just be getting more comics into people's hands just so that they can read the stuff and sort of support yeah. the company and support the story? It's really, you know, you have to choose your path, like what kind of, how, like, how do you want to engage? Um, what's sort of like, what's the angle? What, what class are you taking? Like you're at the beginning of the game and you're choosing what kind of war you want to be like, all right, like, are you going to be a cleric and, you know, fill your book with all of these things? Well, get ready. Cause you're going to be doing a lot of walking. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it also like, you know, there's, there's a level of free marketing that the companies get by this stuff happening. And so, yeah, them like printing enough to get everybody to have a copy does make them money, but also getting people to go crazy about it and causing articles to be written about how, you know, no one can find this punchline's first appearance comic. There's value in that too, unfortunately. All right. 
I'll read the next question. This is from at Odeni is taken. For up and coming cannons, what is the best way to get ahead of the seemingly inevitable toxicity? Likewise, who's currently doing the best job of combating toxicity for their own cannon? Mm, I so I I like this question, but I'm a little I'm a little unclear um, as to how to interpret it because it's like how do you combat toxicity in, in your own cannon? I mean, as a creator, that's like that's your job, you know. You as the person who's doing the world building, um, that sort of becomes a, a core part of the canon of whatever it is that you've made. Um, you have to think to yourself, like, all right, um, such and such killed such and such's father under the blood moon. Um, let me make sure that you know that motivation doesn't end up sort of becoming something that, taken out of context in a normal way, that a reader might. Um, isn't a problem. I think this is a good question, though, if, if you really look at this through the filter of like some of the most toxic uh, communities, like in the video gaming world, like Overwatch mm. dealt with and is still dealing with an extremely toxic community. And the more that Overwatch tried to canonically take progressive steps, um, diversifying their cast, uh, you know, introducing queer characters and mm. so on and so forth. Yeah. They were then met with people who were upset. Right. Um, you know, it's like, oh my God, Tracer is gay, ban this uh, game and, and, and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I don't, is there a way to get ahead of that toxicity or do you just have to be prepared for that level of toxicity when you are making those kind of choices in this space? Mm, that's a, I hadn't thought about it that way. Cause yeah. I, I, I remember when Tracer came out the way that fictional people are want to do sometimes. And it's like, Oh yeah, that lesbian with that lesbian haircut is like a super fast <laughs> lesbian. That's cool. That's great. Like I love, I love that. Um, and yeah, there was, you know, there, there was that pushback. And I think that 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 was very much, you know, a reflection of the the thing that we're always talking about now where fans feel too much ownership. I mean, I think that what you as the proprietor have to do right is obviously foresight is the best move, right? It's like you have to sort of take certain measures to stave off the development in people's minds of like a canon that is going to be incorrect. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like if you plan on making a character's identity a part of who they are, you have to figure out a way to incorporate that into the canon for the public in a way that I guess doesn't necessarily feel like a wild deviation. I'm hesitant to say that though, right? Because that I feel puts almost too much of a burden on, you know, creative teams who have a specific vision. Um, so obviously my, if, if I had my druthers, it's always just like, let like make tracer gay from the jump and then you know the the pushback is like well what if people didn't like the game and it's like ooh, that's rough that's rough i find that i find that hard to believe right we see so many cases where the conventional wisdom that sort of is the reason for some less than stellar commonalities in this space like why queer characters don't lead things why characters of color are relegated to supporting roles um time and time again it's proven not to sort of be borne out when the companies do actually take a chance Right. It's just sort of the assumption that keeps the publishers from putting these things out, be it you know, right. game studios or comic book publishers. You do the thing and it's like, oh, wow, it's so successful. Who could have known? It's like everybody asking you to do it for years. So but like, let's let's shift to. All right. You've you've decided to make your you've decided to make your um, your mascot queer. You've decided to add more brown people into the roster of your game. What now? You have to stand by them. Right. Like that really is the only thing that you can do. Um, because once you've decided to make them a part of the canon, you have to really stick by your guns and remember what 
canon means, right? Um, it's like, hey, like this is it. This is the text. This is the text of the thing and take it or leave it. Particularly with something like Overwatch where there is a hyper-invested community of people who are open and willing to new things um, and they are ready for this new change. All that the company needs to do to sort of send a signal. You saw this with... Um, Excuse me, you saw this with Star Wars and Christina Ariel, um, the host of that new Star Wars show who got a lot of pushback. Um, the company was just like, oh, no, 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 she's one of ours. Like, oh, you're mad? Stay mad. Yeah. Stay mad, please. Uh, a very good, I think, example, even in the gaming world, um, was Naughty Dog with uh, The Last of Us 2. Mm, they had yeah. multiple instances of, you know, the toxic gaming community um, trying to tell them they made the game wrong. And every single time, Naughty, Naughty Dog didn't back down, whether it be the fact that the game was, you know, female-led or that the game had a queer lead or even that, like, Abigail's body didn't look like the conventional female body that these guys were defining. Like, mm. they were like, no way this woman could be that jacked. Like, yes, the ladies can get jacked, boys. Deal with it. Um, and Naughty Dog, through all of their messaging and responses and in uh, presence on social media, never backed down and, and supported their decisions and these actors that portrayed these decisions 100% from the get-go. And I think that was a, a, a very good way to deal with that. I think with Naughty Dog, you bringing that up actually brings me to something else that I think is really important to consider um, is the role that the press plays in shaping the public's understanding of a new thing. Um, there was a lot of controversy around the way that the reviews were handled for The Last of Us, things that people reviewers were and were not allowed to talk about. And a lot of that discussion got wrapped up in this idea of people's voices being stifled. And what a lot of what a lot of readers tend not to understand about what critics do in their jobs is like, oh, we're going to we are going to try to place you in context with this story so that you have, you know, so that you can form a better baseline opinion as you go into it. Um, there are certain things where it's like when you when you are unable to talk about it, that sort of invites not necessarily misinterpretation, but bad faith readings down the line, right? Um, let's say the first wave of reviews for a game come out and because of the restrictions put on the reviewers by the company, they're not allowed to talk about another character who is queer, um, what happens to her. And then suddenly when the thing is out in the wild and open to the public, the first and often loudest voices who have something to say about these things are people who aren't really engaging from a place of, oh, here's how I feel about this thing and I kind of want to criticize it constructively. It's, you know, um, it's rage culture that lend, that leads to clicks and to attention. Um, it's what the algorithm favors and wants. Um, and so as a company, it's like, all right, so we have to sort of toe the, not toe the line, but sort of understand um, the positives and negatives to sort of uh, playing things close to the chest and going for secrecy and also sort of like seeding the public with like, all right, you guys, like, here's what's going on. Um, here's sort of, here's how we kind of want you to read this. I think people might balk at that idea. Like, oh, like, I just want to, I just want to form my own opinions short of receiving something directly, like directly from a company, right? Unbidden. Um, and you just playing it in a vacuum, there is no way that you sort of just objectively receive something, right? You're always, it's always being um, sort of framed by, you know, the news source you go to or the friend who tells it to you. And so when we're thinking about, oh, how do we sort of stave off toxicity and fandom? It's like, all right, the people who you've, you know, the, the organizations that you sort of tap to disseminate information about this thing, let them actually talk about it meaningfully, mm. you know. That's interesting too. I like that. Want to read the next one? I sure do. 
Yeah, so let's lighten things up a little bit, uh, get a little personal. Um, what fantasy book series that's not already been a movie or TV show would you love to see get adapted? What's one you think should never be adapted and why? That one is from Zellaram, I believe. Zetaram. 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 Um, I got a good answer. I think I at least have an answer for the first half. I got to think for a second about the second half, but, um, there's actually a comic book series that I, I enjoyed a lot. I think there might've been some mixed feelings about it, but, um, it was an image comic book series called paper girls, which was this great sci-fi spacey series based around this group of girls who were, you know, paper, uh, you know, newspaper distributors on their bicycles and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, it was, uh, beautifully written and illustrated it was fun it had a beginning and end it wasn't something that someone was like i'm gonna keep writing paper girls until they tell me to stop it's like no they had their story they're gonna tell and i feel you could turn that into either a film adaptation or like a, a short series and i think it would it would do well um i wanted to let you finish uh before i told you that Paper Girls has been optioned for a series at Amazon. Yay! <laughs> I made it happen. I did it, everybody. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I'm actually going to look a little bit deeper into my own history. I, um, as a as a youth, was very, very into the Bobby Pendragon books. Did you ever read those? Have you? you ever, oh. No, I was like, oh, why would you why would you have been reading them? Um, basically, right, so Bobby Pendragon is uh, a young boy who is tasked with hopping realities um, to other dimensions or planets is actually kind of uh, slipping from my mind. But the basic premise is that he hops into these other realities and sort of becomes an integral part of society, not society, but sort of just like an integral part of a moment where that society is at a turning point in its history. And his job is to sort of ensure that one of his dark counterparts does not succeed in pushing society into collapse through a variety of sort of just like larger social problems. So it's not like I've built a death ray. It's like, oh, no, I've poisoned the ocean so that the coral that supports our vegetation no longer works. And so you're all being pushed to war by this. And Bobby, who's a human from, you know, Earth is just like, oh, no, I have to stop these fish people from going um, to (laughs) to war. It has it's it's looking back on it. It very much has um, elements of like Sounds like Doctor Who and Quantum Leap. It is. So here's the thing. It Very that. Very that. Right. But <laughs> in my mind, this would definitely need a little bit of reworking so it doesn't just feel like, ho, 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 I'm coming in and teaching you how to live your lives pro- like, uh, properly, you different people who are not like me. But yeah, I love the series as a kid because while Bobby and the others like him have like certain powers, it very much is like, can you talk your way into the chancellor's graces to be invited to a gala tonight in order to make sure that an assassin does not poison his drink? That's fun. I think that would work. I like that a lot. (laughs) Make it happen. I'm not going to read the book, so make serious so I can wow. experience this. <laughs> wow. Rude. I don't have time. Rude. I don't have time. Oh, man. I um, To the second half of that question, to be honest with you, I don't think that there's... I, I, I don't like taking absolute positions on things like this should never be adapted. I think that yeah. there are things when I hear about them, I think to myself, no, no, that doesn't need to be a thing. Um, but like hit me with your pitch. Like let's, uh, let's, let's hear the log line for it before we make any judgments about it. Yeah. If I were to make a, a, a like a, an answer for like things that I would not want to be adapted, uh, my, I, I would probably pick something that I just really, really like the way that I experienced it and, and just say like, I don't think it needs to necessarily be adapted to a, you know, a different medium. It was, 
it was kind of nice to have it in its own little capsule as it is. But that would be my best answer. It wouldn't be like, oh, if you did it, I'd be upset. Kind of like how people were talking about uh, years ago. It's like, well, you can't adapt Watchmen into anything other than the comic. It's this unadaptable thing. It's like, I, it wasn't. It was totally adaptable. <laughs> They've done it twice now. Um, so I don't think anything like shouldn't be adapted unless it's just bad. <laughs> you know, don't adapt if it's bad. Um, but yeah, that would be my answer for that. Okay, we got time for one more question, but if you like this and you want to see us do more episodes like this, let us know on our social media at Real Canon. Uh, be happy to find out if this was a, a, a break from the norm that you enjoyed. And if you want to see us do it again, we'd love to do another round of this. Maybe even do something just specific about one kind of uh, genre or franchise that you guys want to focus on. But our last question is from at Yeti0013, and they ask... Do you think modern comic book TV shows and movies now obsess too much with planting references and Easter eggs instead of focusing on the story and characters? Hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. I don't think the movies or the series do. I think we do. People do. You know. No, but honestly, it's like there's... That's actually very true. There's so much like... Because the thing about Easter eggs, right? They're Easter eggs. They literally don't do anything in the story. They're just there. They're literally just there to look at. And so it wouldn't be an Easter egg if the movie suddenly started to pay attention to it. Like, whoa, what's this gem over here? Then it's a part of the story, right? But what happens is the discourse online is like, oh, like such and such said he knew a friend. It must be Ben Graham. It's like, yo, chill out. Like, chill. chill, chill." It's literally she is referring to having relationships with other people outside of the people in the scene, (laughs) which is a thing that happens in realities. Sometimes. Um, Sometimes, you know, and that I understand where it comes from, right? You know, to bring it back to this idea of needing to be first, right? Because the culture, the community that we, the communities that we form online, a lot of them are wrapped up in a kind of gamification and a kind of need to sort of get that dopamine hit. And so it's like, well, I... We all watch the same thing, but I watched it more than you did. And it's like, congrats. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm, gl- I'm glad you saw the Grim Reaper's skull in that one frame. Do you feel good? <laughs> yeah, I think there's like two ways that this can happen. And there's like, there's the references and Easter eggs that do just kind of add another layer of enjoyment for those who get them. Um, and as long as they don't, you know, cause a moment of confusion for any audience to understand what's going on, then it's fine. Like if it's if it's just kind of adding little extra stuff to it, do that. That's fun. That's kind of even nodding to the existing fan base. We're like, hey, you guys supported this before it even got to this point. Here's something that that's just for you, and that's kind of nice. But if the if the Easter eggs and references are actually detracting from the story or even just feel forced, then I think that's where you can have a problem, which isn't done too much. I think at this point, I think a a good example I could think of right now was, you know, the, uh, was Whedon and the studio forcing Ray Fisher to say booyah in the justice league when he didn't want to just to oh, reference God. cyborgs catchphrase. Yep. Um, in that instance, it was like, oh, that felt very forced, out of character, and added nothing to the story other than to continue to make this character seem like a cartoon character amidst non-cartoon character, uh, you know, characters in the movie. Um, but if you're like adding little things into the opening title sequence of WandaVision that, you know, people can be like, oh, yeah, like like what you're referencing, like there's the Grim Reaper. It's like, oh, that's that's kind of fun. Like doesn't mean need to mean that he's going to be a big character. No, everyone's show. like, oh, like it's 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 him and Mephisto. And it's like, that's wild. I don't see why. <laughs> but I mean, oh, OK, sure. And then the show yeah. is like, no, 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 no. That was that was a little treat. That was a little treat. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, 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 I think another good example is, uh, is what's his name's character. Oh, I'm going to look it up so I don't sound like an idiot. It's the, the bad guy at the beginning of civil war that got scarred up and everything like crossbones, uh, bones. crossbones, crossbones. It's Frank Grillo, Cro- but yeah. Yeah. But crossbones is like mask had, you know, uh, scuffs on it that made it look like his crossbones mask from the comics. And that's just kind of a nice little reference mm-hmm. to his costume in the comics. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Right. And it's like, oh, but he's going to be back. And it's like, I mean, anything is possible, but why are we spending hours talking about this? Yeah. I, th- I think it's, I think, I think they're fine as long as they don't continue to be like some sort of focus as to the only reason that people are watching these things. And I don't think that's the case yet. Okay, well, that's going to be it for this episode. We're not even going to get into headcanons because this entire episode was our headcanons on (laughs) stuff. Um, But again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'd love to hear from you on our social media on at RealCanonPod on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, if you liked what you heard, and we know you did, why not tell a friend about the show? Word of mouth has played a huge role in helping the show grow, and we want to keep that going. And if this episode was your first time checking us out, give us a follow. We have plenty of episodes that are not like this one where we go deep into things like WandaVision, Pokemon, Star Wars, and plenty of others. And for those of you who are already followers of us, we want to give you a heads up that we're changing the release schedule of the show to accommodate a more timely response to some of the stuff we want to talk about. So starting with the next episode, we are going to be releasing shows every Tuesday, starting with the first one on April 20th. Um, yes, it's 420. We're not making jokes about that, but the next episode will release like that. And from then on, every episode will be on Tuesdays. I'm definitely making a joke about it, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, everyone get ready, get hyped. And we'll be back very soon with more of the real canon.